when his communion, the sermon comes on very early. Usually it's later on. We've got lots more to do, but here, here it is. It's, it's upon you before you know it. This is a great section we've just read, the end of this first chapter of John's Gospel, the fourth day in the week that John recounts at the beginning of Jesus' life, whether it's uh, exactly one week or whether he's taken uh, a number of weeks and put them together, conflated them together or not, we're, we're not sure. Certainly it's presented in the Gospel as a, as a, a week. And uh, on the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Well, I want to look at this this evening as we come. Let me place it in its context in case you're, you're new this evening and you haven't been following the story so far. Basically, John, in his introduction to his gospel, has taken us from creation to recreation, from the original creation, which he says was accomplished by God through his word, the word uh, through whom everything was made, all things were made through him, without him was not anything made that was made. In that introduction, he, he introduces us to this figure, this uh, personality called the Word. The Word is distinct from God. He was with God, face to face with God. But He is also God. The Word was God. But it's underlined that although He is God, He is in the beginning with God. And uh, so we're introduced to mystery right at the very beginning of the gospel, the mystery of the Godhead, the mystery of the essence, the essential nature of the Godhead. And our minds are being prepared to understand the unfolding doctrine that we now know as the doctrine of the Trinity. We know that at the beginning, in Genesis, for example, we find God, we find God's Word, God's speaking, and we find the Spirit of God hovering over all the things that God had made, bringing order out of chaos and light out of darkness and life out of nothing. Well, here we have God introduced. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, this word, this figure that is one with God, is the means through whom all things were created. This word becomes flesh. He puts skin on. And he pitches his tent among us. And the reporter John, the, the author of the gospel, uh, speaks for others, the other apostles, when he says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a new creation. It's a new creation accomplished by the power of God. John doesn't elaborate here, but it's a, a work that is, that is accomplished by the power of God in bringing about this amazing miracle of the Word that is eternal and was always with God becoming human. Well, from there, in the chapter as it unfolds, testimony is then brought forward as to the identity of this person. He's introduced by name in verse 17. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is the only God and who has made the eternal, the unseen God known to us. That's a very big claim. That lies at the very heart of Christianity. It takes us beyond uh, some of the language and the rhetoric that we often use in Christian circles. It takes us beyond the kind of Jesus loves you. 
Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Get to know Jesus. Kind of language that we often dandy about and which seems rather superficial and shallow. I suppose to some of you who aren't Christians, it seems very superficial and shallow. And that's because in many ways it is. Christianity is far more robust than that and has a lot more to say than that. And what it has to say is far more demanding of you, of your intellectual powers as well as of your emotional capacity uh, to embrace. We're saying that there is only one God. We're saying that that only one God has made the entire universe and that nothing exists apart from Him and His direct intervention. Nothing exists apart from Him. We're saying that this God is dynamic, though He is a simple being, thought in a philosophical sense. Nonetheless, there is, there is a diversity within the Godhead. There is personality. There is the personality of the Father, the personality of the Son, and the personality of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We're saying that this God, in Christ, has broken in to our world, that He has visited our world. That, as C.S. Lewis puts it, this world we live in is the visited planet. God has visited the world. Now, on what basis do we believe in this? We don't believe in it just because John has given us a very poetic and very well-structured introduction to his gospel. We believe it because people were there People had been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. And we, in John's Gospel, are introduced to some of these people who were there, who saw this stuff take place, who in space and time and history encountered the person that, that is being introduced to us here. And the first person on the roster of witnesses is this figure that we know all about from extra-biblical literature, that is, Literature of the time outside of what we call the Bible and outside of what we call the New Testament. This man is known to us as John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. This man is a towering figure. He's an important figure. He is spoken widely outside of the Bible, and yet in the Bible his role is rather perfunctory at one level. It's, it's very minimal at, at another level, and yet it is absolutely vital for us because this John... The only John who's mentioned in this gospel, because the author doesn't want to take anything away from his place in the, in the unfolding drama of redemption and in the big salvation story of the Bible, this John is important because he is the first public witness, the first representative of Israel, the first prophet. He's the last prophet of Israel, the first witness to the Messiah, to Jesus. And so we begin in verse 19 with, this is the testimony of John. And that's really what's been unfolding throughout this chapter. Some of John's disciples have been directed by John to Jesus. He's identified Jesus, and he's pointed to Jesus. When they came to him, when the authorities came to him, and they asked him the question, who are you? What are you? Are you this? Are you that? Are you the next thing? He replied, and he quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, these words. All I am is the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, is going to visit you. 
Get ready for Yahweh to visit you. He is coming. He is coming to visit you, he says to these people. And they say to him, well, who are you? And three times John denies that he is the latter days Messiah. And he points them to Jesus and he says to the, about Jesus, who comes to the river where John's doing his work, that this one is before him, this one is above him, and that he as a prophet of Israel exists only to serve him. And he's not even worthy to serve him. And he goes further. He says, not only is this the one who's to come, not only is he before me in time, he is eternal. Not only is he above me in rank, he is superior. Not only am I here to serve him, but he has a specific purpose in being here. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. In other words, John is the first to witness to the work that the Messiah has come to do. And uh, it is this work as the Lamb of God. John is saying to the people, this one, this Jesus, is the curse-carrying, sin-bearing, wrath-enduring, salvation-winning, substitute, sacrifice. This is the one who will bring salvation to Israel. And what you have to understand is that that identification of the work that Jesus had come into the world to do makes sense then of the incarnation. Why had he become flesh? Why did he need to take on our humanity so, so thoroughly as he did? The answer is that he had to take our place. He had to live our life. He had to put himself in the conditions under which you and I strive day by day, moment by moment. He had to be Capable of death, of dying. As a man, he had to be capable in a position whereby he could be put in a position where he comes under the curse of God, pinned to the tree, as he was to be. So John identifies the Lamb of God, and in fact, what the writer of the gospel, who's another John, uh, does is in the very last book of the Bible points us again to Jesus as the lamb who was slain and sees him as the one who will bring an end to all of history. He will end history as the triumphant warrior lamb who rides out against all his enemies to defeat them and to bring justice to the world. Now it's this John then who is the last prophet of Israel gives testimony to the Messiah and as the first evangelist in the church points his disciples to Jesus. And they respond in verse 25. They go out after Jesus and they're there with him from the beginning, with him in his company, listening to what he says, seeing where he came from, seeing that he's there among them. They are being prepared to be apostles, that is, those who had been with Jesus from the beginning. And now we come to this little vignette that we read earlier in which we're told very simply about some other characters who are going to be quite crucial in the story. And we're told some very important things about these people because in this little altercation between Jesus and these people, some very important things, some more information about who Jesus is, is going to spill out for us. And the vignette really is in three 
parts. Jesus found Philip, Philip found Nathanael, and Nathanael found Jesus. First of all, Philip, Jesus found Philip. We find him searching for Philip. Some wonder whether it's the he is Andrew found Philip, but I think the context suggests it was Jesus. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. There's a purpose involved in his mind. There's something in his mind that's going to be replicated later on when he decided to go through Samaria and found someone there. He decided to go to Galilee. And there he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And that's important. Why is this region of Galilee specified? Galilee lay in the frontier of Judea. Many of the elites back in Jerusalem, the capital city, despised the people of that region. It was a dodgy area. People weren't quite, you know, maybe kosher. There was kind of questions about their genetic background and their whatever. And there were all kinds of questions raised by the powers that be back in Jerusalem. It was a despised area. And yet it was people in this despised area of Galilee who welcomed Jesus. More than the people of Judea, his own his own part of the, of the country. He'd been born in Bethlehem of Judea, but his own people in Judea would reject him. And given the fact that in this whole first section of John's Gospel, there have been so many references to the prophet Isaiah, it's likely that, that in highlighting that Jesus is operating here in Galilee, John wants us to, to remember the language of Isaiah chapter 9, where uh, there is a reference to the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations, that is, Galilee of the Goyim, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the frontier, of the kind of, you know, right there on the edge of things, not quite whatever, kosher. And this wonderful prophecy that Isaiah gives us there, that the people who walked in darkness, that is, the people of Galilee who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. That those who dwelt in a land of the deep darkness, on them has the light dawned. In other words, in the larger story of this gospel, it serves to remind us of God's activity, particularly among those who are marginalized in Israel. Jesus demonstrates his authority by calling one of these people from this marginalized area to himself and claiming the allegiance of this man. Philip's name is a Greek name, which ought not to surprise us. Remember that Palestine had been under Greek domination for a long, long time before the Romans took over. And Greek had taken hold, and people had learned Greek, and people, even Jews, were naming their children with Greek names. Philip came from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. We know from the other Gospels, of course, that Andrew and Peter lived in Capernaum a few miles away. Likelihood is that Bethesda was their, their place where they were born and grew up, and that they'd moved to Capernaum when they got married, perhaps, or in order to work their business there. And that's likely the relationship. But Jesus found Philip. And in the, in the overall story of this first chapter, let me just say this. Jesus finds people in a whole variety of ways. Up to now, people have found him by being directed by John the baptizer. 
he has pointed his disciples to Jesus. And they've gone and followed him and stayed with him and watched him and seen where he dwelt and understood that he had really come and he was really there. And they're learning something about him and already they're convinced that he is the Messiah. Whatever content they put into that word at this stage, nonetheless, they are convinced this man is the Messiah as far as they could see and know. But now here is Jesus, and this time he does it differently. He calls the man directly to himself. That sometimes happens. Many parts of the world that we can't get to people. We can't get to people with a witness. We can't get through to them because they're closed countries or closed areas. And what does Jesus do? He calls them directly to himself. It's an amazing versatility in the Godhead in drawing men and women into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus found Philip. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Earlier we found Andrew testifying to his brother Peter, saying we have found the Messiah. And now Philip joins Andrew in making a similar public statement. Philip's confession is based on the witness this time of Scripture. In John's Gospel, all Scripture points to Jesus. And Philip is telling this man, Nathaniel, that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah who was testified to in the Scripture. Moses and the prophets. Sometimes Scripture is summarized by the expression, the law and the prophets. Just the same thing. And he quotes Moses. Maybe he was thinking of Moses giving a prophecy of the Messiah back in Genesis. You remember when the promise came from Jacob to his children that one of them, one of his children, one of his descendants from the tribe of Judah would, uh, would have the scepter and would draw people, the nations, to himself. Or maybe it's the prof promise of Moses, that, that they would become a perfect prophet, a, a prophet like Moses, who would be perfect, whose word would come true and would speak the word of God to Israel. Maybe that was what was on Philip's mind. But this one thing is true, that throughout John's gospel, witness to Christ is the most common function of Moses in this gospel. And then there were the later prophets. The later prophets were rich in promises of a son of David or a servant of the Lord or a king priest who would come in the name and the power of the Lord. And Philip is saying to Nathaniel, we've found him. We've found him. And he gives him a name. We found the Messiah and he has a name and an identity. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That reference to Joseph likely implies the link with his Davidic heritage. Nathaniel apparently takes offense at the mention of Nazareth. We actually don't know why. All kinds of speculations as to why he took offense at this. Uh, Nazareth was a relatively small town. It, li the, it lived in the shadow of a larger city of Sephorus, a far more prestigious city, a very prestigious city, a large, large city. And Jesus dotted around it and never went into it as far as we know. He never 
Nothing in the Gospels even mentions this great city. It's like, it's like Jesus lived in Wayne and went to Oxford and, and went to Ardmore or, and uh, went over the border into Delaware and never, ever, ever came into Philadelphia. That's a kind of similarity. He never went near that big city. Now, it may very well be that Nathaniel's hostility is no more than just Capernaum. I mean, a prophet from one's own country. You, you, you want a prophet to come in from the outside, you know. When we were growing up, when we were growing up, going to church, and we would have visiting speakers. If they came from Glasgow, yeah, I mean, you know. But if they flew in from America, let me just tell you, it really didn't matter how good you were. If you came from America with an American accent, we would turn out in droves to hear you. I mean, just to hear you talk, just to hear the accent, just to, to listen to it and think, this man comes from that country where John Wayne lives, or other really important people like that. I mean, really, we were so impressed. We were very easily impressed. Really, we were. And maybe it's a case of, well, you know, somebody from down the road, you're not really too impressed with somebody from down the road. Maybe it was that level, we don't know. Maybe it was just basic civic rivalry that was common in antiquity. We, we don't know the basic, really. I mean, there are all kinds of speculations, and I'm not going to tire you with giving you them, but I think it's still too true today, isn't it? That so many people, when they come to the question of Jesus, come with their preconceived conceptions, their preconceived prejudices regarding him, regarding what they think they've heard about him, regarding what they understand or think they understand about Christianity. We come to the issue of the Christian message and, and you come to it, you come to it, and you come to this service, for, for instance, this evening, and you're already second-guessing everything that we will do, everything that we will say already. And Nathaniel Nathaniel's your patron saint. And Philip's response to Nathaniel is the best response you can ever give to anybody like that. He says to Nathaniel, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue the relative merits of Nazareth over against Bethsaida. Bethsaida. I'm not going to do that. Come and see. Come and see. I often say that to people when I get into conversation with somebody who, who really doesn't believe at all. And, uh, and I'll say to them, you owe, it, you owe it to yourself in your life to check us out. I mean, for yourself, not second-hand or third-hand. Why don't you give yourself three months, slip in the back of a church service, observe us, listen to us, and after three months, make up your mind. Come and see. Come and see. I remember one lady who did that. And I was preaching through the book of Nehemiah at the time. And Nehemiah is a pretty rough and tumble book. It's, it's a book whereby it's like every Sunday I was taking the congregation by the scruff of the neck, headbutting them, <laughs> kneeing them, kicking them, Punching them seriously. And after 
after less than three months, I think it was after two months, she came to me and she said, I want to become a Christian. I said, what's led to this? She said, as I sat there and I watched you absolutely attack those people and them taking it, I thought to myself, there is something in Christianity that grown people, respectable people, people in the community that I recognize for their influence, would take that week after week after week after week. There has to be something in it. Come and see. Philip did the right thing. So Philip came and saw Jesus. Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathanael. And Nathanael found Jesus. Nathanael saw, or Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, here, look at him, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What did Nathanael find when he found Jesus? He found that Jesus knew him already. It was an amazing thing. Jesus was able to look into his heart. Just as we saw earlier, those of us who have been following the story so far, when Jesus had an encounter with Peter, he was able to identify the kind of person Peter was and called him Kephas, which means Peter. So he knew this man. He saw through this man. This was a supernatural knowing. And it was this supernatural knowing that got the attention of Nathaniel and convinced him and brought him to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Just as later on in John's Gospel in chapter 4, a Samaritan woman comes to believe in Jesus because of his supernatural knowing of her condition. He knows how many husbands she's had and knows that the man she's living with isn't her husband. He knows. And this gets the attention of Nathaniel. Well, it would, wouldn't it? In other words, Nathaniel's testimony is to us, for us to hear, to listen into, regarding his first encounter with Jesus, was this. That when he first encountered Jesus, Jesus already knew everything about him. It was unbelievable. And it wasn't one of these cases where the kind of dressed-in-white evangelist has already got his henchman at the door, finding out a little bit about you and then passing little notes or, or messages into a little earpiece here, telling the evangelist about this person six rows down, four people in, has got, you know, a runny nose, and heal him, or so whatever it might be. This was none of that. This was supernatural knowledge. And it gets Nathaniel's attention. Absolutely gets his attention. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus knows this man. What does he mean when he says, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit? Well, he's contrasting, he's contrasting Nathaniel and Jacob. By the way, you could read this two ways. Let me just find this verse again. Jesus said to to him, behold, uh, an Israelite indeed behold, in whom there is no deceit. He's contrasting him with Jacob. You remember Jacob was the first person to be called Israel in the Bible. Israel is named Israel because they're descended from Jacob, who was renamed by God Israel. 
And uh, Jacob, the first Israel, was a swindler and a deceiver and a tricky person, a real trickster. But here Jesus is contrasting Nathanael. He's saying to Nathanael, you're an Israelite, all right. You're descended from Jacob. But unlike Jacob, you have no deceit. You're not a deceit. You're, you're a real guy. You are, you are true. You have a conscience and so on. Nathanael said to him, how come you know that about me? How come you know my character? Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There are all kinds of speculations about the fig tree, by the way. All kinds of other references to the Old Testament here, the fig tree, or the, the branch of the Lord, and so on. Is this what, what's going on here? Uh, we have absolutely no idea, really. After all the speculations are said and done, we have no idea. I think the bottom line is this. Jesus mentions a specific concrete situation to Nathaniel that Nathaniel knows and now Jesus knows and nobody else knows. And when Jesus mentions it to Nathaniel, Nathaniel knows beyond any peradventure or shadow of a doubt, Jesus knows things supernaturally. He knows things supernaturally. And he's convinced. Jesus knew him. And because Jesus knew him, do you see, Nathanael found that Jesus was the Messiah. That discovery overwhelmed him. It just broke down all his resistance. And he comes out with the strongest language of anybody yet in their testimony. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Both of those expressions belong together. You are the Son of God and the King of Israel. They were looking forward to a Son of God which was a royal title, the King of Israel. And that's the way he's using it here. Uh, later, as the gospel goes on, that word, that expression, Son of God, is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and contain more and more and more and more truth. But right here, I think, in Nathaniel's mouth, that's all it means. But it's a big meaning. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. The Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus would not deliberately use those expressions. He permits them here. He recognizes them here. He pronounces them legitimate here, but he refuses to use them because, remember, the language of the king of Israel was potentially subversive of Roman authority. As we learn later in John's gospel, Jesus makes it very clear in this gospel that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not there to establish a kind of political threat to the Roman state. Rather, he has come to claim the hearts and minds of people, whatever authority they live under. He had found the Messiah. And he found that Jesus was the mediator. The reference to Israel and Israelite play off a new name that was given to Jacob, the father of the nation. And he was given that new name after a particular incident in his life. And Jesus now refers to that incident in Genesis 28, verse 4. Nathanael and the others had stepped forward in faith on the basis of Jesus' display of supernatural knowledge. And so the Master promises them 
to you, plural, that they will, you, plural, will see the greatness of the Son of Man far surpassing that glorious vision of Jacob the patriarch. Remember that vision? Jacob, dead of night, lies down to sleep and rests his head on a stone. That stone is the stone of Schoon, which is kept in Scotland and on which we crown our kings. Isn't it amazing? You don't believe me? They've believed that for years, you know. American tourists believe it. That's why they come to see it. And as long as they'll come and pay good money to see that stone, we're going to insist that is Jacob's pillow that night, okay? Anyway, he lies down, puts his head on this stone, and he has a vision. It's another worldly vision. He sees other worldly realities. He sees a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching the heavens, and the angels of God are ascending and descending on, probably on him. Not on the ladder, but on him, meaning Jacob. Because the angels ascend and descend on him, Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, saw it as a sign of God's revelation, a reaffirmation of God's faithfulness to his promises made to Abraham. And now Jesus is saying to this man, Nathaniel, that he is the fulfillment of that vision. That he and the others will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. And when he awoke, that is Jacob, from his dream he exclaimed, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And he called the place Bethel. And Jesus is saying to him, Not only am I the new Israel, I'm the new Bethel. The house of God, the place of meeting. I am the place in which heaven and earth meet. God and humanity meet. You want to know God, you come through me. You want to know about God, you listen to me. And Jesus is saying to this man, I am going to give you and your brethren here, the apostles, I'm going to give you greater revelation, greater revelation than was ever received by Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah. Greater revelation than was given up to this point. Something greater is going to be given to you. He's saying more than that. He's saying that Jesus himself is the proper place of worship. He's saying that Jesus himself is the focus of worship and the mediator by which we come to God. He is the mediator. He is the one who extends between earth and heaven. He is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if we would know God, we must know Jesus. If we would come to God, we must come through Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Not just because it's a nice way to get the prayer finished, but it's the only means by which we get a hearing with God in Jesus' name. And he was teaching them more. He was teaching him through this expression, heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
something of the unique and uninterrupted fellowship between Jesus and the Father. That relationship is going on all the time. It's a relationship of fellowship between Jesus and the Father. And he gives himself a new name. The Son of Man. The Son of Adam. Comes out of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel sees this heavenly being, the son of Adam, but a heavenly being, this combination of being both a heavenly being and a son of Adam, a human being. He sees this being given kingdom and authority. And he's claiming by using this title that he is the new representative human. He is the divine human figure who has unbroken fellowship with God. One of the great emphasis of this gospel is that Jesus is the second and last Adam, the true and faithful Israel. Son of God, not only as the king, but also in the sense of sharing the very nature of God. Son of man, picking up where Adam and Israel had failed and bringing obedience and service and using that obedience and service to bring glory to God. Jesus is subtly turning Nathanael away from the contested titles, king of Israel. Without denying their truth, nor denying that they properly understood apply to him. Nonetheless, he's turning his attention away from that to this heavenly title, emphasizing this heavenly destination. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When did that prophecy come true? Was it at Jesus' transfiguration? Nathaniel wasn't there to see it. Was it when Jesus was exalted to heaven at his ascension? A cloud hid him from their sight. Ultimately. Ultimately. This promise will be fulfilled on that day when the heavens are torn apart. When the archangel's trumpet will sound. When with a great roar, earth's story comes to an end. When with majestic, splendid, heart-piercing, mind-blowing power, Jesus appears to every human being, whoever existed, wherever they existed, at whatever time they existed, all at once. We all see him in his majestic splendor. Every eye shall see him. And he comes with his angels in glorious assembly. And he comes to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. And he comes to judge the world in righteousness. On that day when every eye sees him. This will be ultimately fulfilled. We will see him in his splendor. We will see this heavenly being and the kingdom and the power and the authority and the dominion that are his. And he shall reign forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in our daily lives we'd be prepared to say to those who are questioning, doubting, mocking, come and see. 
And we pray that in our hearts we would be looking up to this same Lord Jesus and saying, Come, Lord Jesus. In his strong name we pray. Amen.